the ancient one of this cosmos is to be driven into exit. Now the prince of the sage shall be driven out, Jesus said. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Jesus was no coward. He knew what the cross meant. Anxiety is the result of an undisciplined conscience. I do not promise that I can get rid of all of your anxiety. But I promise that it comes from you not disciplining your conscience with what you know to be true according to Scripture. Rather, you let your conscience and your imagination run away with itself, taking hold of whatever most recent slogan was most dopamine-influencing. What I mean by that is whatever made you get a kick the way the TV does, that's going to be your metric for life. And if you haven't figured out, they're selling you fear so that you'll keep listening. That's kind of it. That's, that's how it's working. What's really happening in various places is in various places. But they're selling the nation fear, anxiety, an undisciplined conscience. And you will have an undisciplined conscience if you do not take care of your inner life. I asked this question last week. Did you know that you have something called an inner life? That inside of your body is a world of ideas that's always taking place. And everything that goes in your eyes and your ears either fuses with it or gets puked back out. But the puking out only happens if you do it. Now, some of the ideas inside of you, no matter who you are, will cause you to puke out other ideas right away. But the question is then, why is it Christians are so rarely puking out, he is risen? And so often puking out things like arguments about why we should or should not wear masks. Think about it, how little our dialogue, how little our hearts spew forth the joy of God according to what his word says, even when our hearts don't feel it, which is the power of Christianity to speak, rejoice in the Lord and not feel a bit of it, but know it's true because he's risen. So the goal this year is to help us discipline our conscience, our spirit, our breath as a core community planted by God here to believe that this world is not all that there is and there's a better one coming and live in this world knowing that that is true with full conviction. It's going to take us time to understand each other and gain that language to learn what we can pull from our grand tradition as Lutheranism. And then to learn how sometimes walking up to someone and saying, I'm a Lutheran, isn't the best way to start a conversation about him being risen from the dead. There's a line we've got to learn to walk in together, to grow what we've received and plant it in the ground, letting God bring forth the growth he will give where we are. The only way that happens is if these words go into you and do more than just fly back out like everything else. They have to be something that you imbibe this year, and I'm going to be very intentional about that. So as we try to expose the strongholds of a broken mind, that is, a natural human mind is broken because it has certain barriers to certain truths that are just there when you're born. And we're going to try to expose those this year so you can see them in you, not other people. The worst thing you can do from what I take this morning is start to point fingers. What I'm going to teach you how to do is to discern what's going on inside of you. 
so that you can get control of bringing it to the cross and knowing it's going to be freed so that your conscience can finally care about your neighbor without having to justify yourself in the process. It's an amazing shift, and it only happens by imbibing the scriptures, by chewing on the scriptures. So I'm going to try to make you do that. I'm also going to be taking you through then, along with some of these key terms in my book, Broken, that you don't have to buy, but I'm going to give it to you in this series of sermons for 52 weeks. I'm also going to be talking a lot about this book, Talk Them Into It, which I just wrote for you. And although every book I've written has for you in the dedication page, I mean it, St. Paul. I've been here two years. I wrote this so that we can read it together and learn how to talk to our friends and neighbors about Jesus. And there's a free copy for you to take with you. The PDF or the digital copy is also free. Just sign up for my newsletter at redfist.com and you can get any version that you want and you can give it away to anybody that you want. Because the point is not to make money on this book. The point is to talk more about him being risen from the dead to ourselves. Believing that if that happens, other people are going to hear it. <laughs> And they're going to start to ask about it. And they're going to want to know how you know so much about your God and can place such trust in your God. And you're going to be equipped to say so because piece by piece, we're going to build that platform for you. We're also going to be adding something, lest it just be Fisk up here. Every week, I'm going to be giving you some of the wisdom of Solomon. We're going to take a moment in every sermon at various points. We'll just stop and be like, right now is wisdom of Solomon time. Here it is. Open your Bible to Proverbs. Find this and maybe highlight this verse. Every week I'm going to do that to try to help you see how much the Bible applies immediately to your life right now. And then, of course, the St. Paul mindset is behind all of this, that when you come to church, you bring a Bible to read along and take notes. You bring some paper to take notes. You bring a hymnal with you, and we'll give you one if you don't have one, so that the prayer book of the church becomes the prayer book of your home. That's the St. Paul mindset. Now, all of this will hopefully be going into the text. So this morning, all the stuff I just told you I'm going to do, I'm not going to do a lot of it. I'm just going to do a few pieces. So the first thing here is the major idea out of this book. If you read the whole book, what would it mean in one basic sentence? And that is, there is only one lie. Rely on yourself. It's the only lie the devil tells, and every other lie is a version of that. And the truth that God preaches is the antidote to this lie. He is risen. And you're like, but I'm not in that sentence. Yes. The antidote to you is not you. The antidote to you is Jesus. The only lie the devil tells over and over again is stop looking at Jesus. He's good, but not enough. And so you must now have this with Jesus, and then it will be blank, 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 your favorite fleshly dream. That lie tempts every single one of us every single day. The goal of this book is not that you would learn to never have that lie told in your life. Temptations are sure to come, and they'll come from your flesh. The goal is to call it what it is when you see it. To know the lie by smell and say, I've heard this lie from my head before. It's been exposed, and I know where it goes. I know that reliance on myself leads to despair. So I won't go there. Instead, I'm going to keep working on how to talk them into believing Jesus is risen. Two points from this book this morning. The first one, all Christians are not silent. They can't be. If you happen to be a Christian has lost your voice, that is the exception to the reality that all Christians have voices. And their voices, if they are Christians, 
must say he is risen or they're not Christians. If you do not confess that Jesus is sick, like the evangelism teams will try to teach you to close the deal in the sale, get someone to say he has risen out loud and, oh, now you're, now you're saved. Oh, you made it. Thank goodness. Not that. Just the other reality that when Jesus comes preaching something to you to change you, it is he is risen. And that the change that happens is that you begin to say it to others somehow, some way. And if you're not doing that enough yet, it's not necessarily your fault because technically the head of the church, the voice, the mouth should be equipping you to do this. And yet at the same time, you can never point the finger at your wicked leaders and say it's only their fault either. Yes? And so in this, what we must do is forget the past and move on toward what is ahead. The point of saying that Christians always say he has risen and you're not a Christian if you don't is not to get you to wonder if you're a Christian. The goal is to get you to say, you're right, he is risen. It is true. I will say it again. Christianity is never silent, ever. And that should disturb us too, given how silent we've become on almost all matters in the public square. The second point from the book this morning is that the only way anybody becomes a Christian is that somebody else talks them into it. And I know our Lutheran like stigma kicks at that language. Like, oh, you're saying that it's man done, right? You've got to go, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying the only way that someone becomes a Christian is that words about Jesus centering around him being risen and him coming back and you being paid for and therefore not going to be going to hell when he comes back. That story is told to you often enough that you are convinced it's true. You're talked into it. It's the only way it happens. If you're in, baptized as an infant, we still have to talk you into it. If you come as an adult, we got to talk you into it. It's the only way Christianity happens is you talk people into it. And what have Lutherans done for the last 50 years? We've formed a committee of six to talk about how we could form a program to get people to talk people into Jesus. As if we could send off six of us into a corner and that would be mission. Or as if you could call a new pastor and he would just magically make people show up. The only way people come to your church is that you want to go to your church. <laughs> and you like staying there and being there because when you're there, you talk about Jesus and the things of Jesus which do pertain to this life. And the people that are with you here in this life are on the same ship. We're in the same journey. It's a chaotic sea, but we feel order because of the orders of Jesus. That's maybe too much on talk to minute into it this morning, but I think you get the point again. We cannot be silent because we cannot be silent. And so we begin to speak. And the more we speak, the more we speak. Now, I have an ant on the Bible here. A little bit of Proverbs this morning. I hope to normally do this right at the start of the sermon, but I'm putting it here kind of in the middle for a reason. If you would like to open to Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, I'm not going to read through it all, but that's kind of the section I'm going to talk about. And it really summarizes much of what comes after it in the first couple of chapters of the book. The idea is that you should read the book. The idea is that Anybody, anywhere, who figures out how to be wise is only going to find what's already here in this book. It's not that you can't go and talk to the Dalai Lama on a Himalayan mountaintop and learn, learn some wisdom about patience. He's a pretty patient guy. He can tell you a lot about it. But it's already in the book of Proverbs. 
right? So, so you, can, you can do it the hard way. That's called being foolish. The book of Proverbs will tell you to not be afraid of saying something's foolish if it's foolish. It's, it's foolish. The, the way God gives it to you was well, that you would hear it from someone who knows, a preacher. That's what Solomon was, although he was also a king. And that's what the Dalai Lama is as well. So again, why would you go to the Dalai Lama, a pagan, to learn patience when you're a Christian and you have a book to teach it to you and a pastor to preach it to you and brother and sister Christians to speak it to? That's the idea. That the wisdom that is there should be our wisdom. And you're only going to find more of it the deeper you dig. If you're going to pinpoint one verse in this section, look at verse 7. The fear of Jesus, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of knowledge. It's not all knowledge. It's the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. There's so much in that. What does it mean to fear God? I mean, that's like a, a three-hour conversation. What does it mean to have the beginning of knowledge and have that pulled out from underneath you? I can tell you it looks like our civilization. When you tell everybody that the whole world's made on accident and we're just a version of monkey, they don't have consciences anymore at a certain point. They just do what they're going to do. So once you've pulled God's essence as an idea, this isn't even Christianity, just the idea of a maker, a creator, a design out of humanity, what you have then is tyranny and hate. And we call that sin, by the way. We've known this forever. They're discovering it now. They call it racism as if that could really categorize all the evils that have ever been done. There are so many of them. In any case, what I really want you to pull out of 1.7, though, is this, that a fool despises wisdom and instruction. A fool doesn't want to hear more of what God's word says. I'm going to tell you a riddle. I'm not going to answer it. I think I know the answer now, but it's one that, this has been with me, because it's not only happened here at St. Paul. It's happened in almost every church I've been at, minus one. And it's because there I was never allowed to go longer than 12, 15 minutes. But how does one respond to this statement when someone says it to you? Pastor, you need to keep the sermon shorter. Now, my ear is trained to hear the word sermon as like the equivalent of the holy God speaking to you. And so in my ear, I'm hearing you say, Pastor, please make sure God talks to us less. And I don't think that's what you want to say. I think you mean something else, probably. But then again, that's kind of the challenge, isn't it? And, and remember that at the foot of Mount Sinai, that's exactly what they said to Moses after God did speak. They said, make Moses speak. Don't let God speak anymore. And for their part, God gave them the mouth of Moses. Well, for the New Testament church, he's given, them, given us the mouths of men sent and ordained to just be your mouth. That's all that I am. I'm the mouth of Scripture among you. You take it or leave it for what it is. I came here because you've been taking it since I started giving it. And I call that a blessing because I've been in enough places where that doesn't happen to know what it is when I find it. And I think that no matter what other turmoils and changes come upon us in the next five years here in Rockford together, that nothing is going to dissuade those of us who are here because of that. Because we know there's more in this wisdom uh, than just sort of a spiritual story for somewhere else. Just something we hear on Sunday to kind of pat ourselves on the back and then go back to the rest of it. Wisdom's going to teach us that. Now, here's the question, though. 
And here's where I'm going to be really tangential today. I, I, I realized I've been completely unfair to you. I've asked you for the last couple of months to consider taking notes on the sermon. And that was very arrogant of me, honestly. To assume anyone had done for you what someone long ago did for me, which is teach me how to take notes. That's not cool of me to ask you to do something if I've never even told you what it means. So what I want to do is tell you what it means when I say consider taking notes. There's two levels to this. And I promise you, and this is a purely secular promise, nothing to do with the Bible. If you practice this on anything in your life, you're going to get smarter. This is how smart people get smart. It, it, it is how, this is it. It's magic. Promise. The first thing you do is that you take what's called a first note. And this can be on anything. It can be on a napkin. It can be on your leg. Right? You've done this before for something. i got to remember something. Write it down. It's called a first note. To do that, you have to have two really cool things with you. You have to have a piece of paper, if you can find one, and a pen, if you can find one. And I promise you, if you use cheap pens that people gave you for free, you won't enjoy picking them up. But if you ever find a pen in a store that feels really good, it'll be your favorite friend ever. And you'll want to pick it up when you hear something awesome, and you'll want to write it down. Now, the main thing with, again, a first note is you have to listen to something or read something, and then, then what? That's the question. So I'm reading, I'm listening to the sermon. What do I do? Okay, so... First, just sit back and listen. Like, don't start writing. Don't have a plan. Hear what the person's saying, and you want to listen for two things, okay? And it really doesn't matter. It can be in any direction your brain wants to go. You're listening for something that was said that makes sense and is not supremely boring to you. And I mean that, okay? Listen, and if you hear something and it makes sense, ooh, that makes sense, and it's not supremely boring, golly, how much time did it take him to find that out? then write it down. Just in your own words, don't even finish the sentence. Let it trail off into bad handwriting. Just, and then look up again and then listen. Oh, ooh, that made sense, write that down. And what I'll do is arrows and hashtags and make all sorts of stuff all over the place on it. And you look at it, it's like, what the heck? But when I look at it, it's a story that I can read. Well, I've practiced this, okay? I've done it my whole life. But now here's the next thing you wanna do, okay? You want to supercharge your note-taking on anything in life. You can apply this to anything. Then after you've taken those first notes on a book, on a lecture, on whatever, where it's interesting to you, you only wrote down what was interesting to you. And the boring stuff you said, I don't care. You just didn't write it down. Because you're not trying to pass a test. You're trying, to, you're trying to find something interesting. So you did. You wrote it down. Then you go, and a day later, you take that. However long it is, you try to make it half or a third as big. You make it shorter. You put the gist into it, right? You get, you get the meaning of it down, write it out one more time on a new piece of paper. And then you have a choice. You can take that new piece of paper and you go, wow, look what I just wrote. That's amazing. Because you'll be amazed what came out of your head. You won't believe how smart you are. I'm serious. It'll blow your mind. Well, that's a, I should do something with this. Well, the first time you do this and you have that moment, I challenge you to throw it away. The first time you get one of these notes out and you're like, I should, just throw it away. Why? Because it's inside you. The point is it went inside you. This is how you put words inside you, this process. And if you throw it away, it's a confession that you know it's so true that you'll call it up whenever you need to or the Lord will bring it to mind for you whenever you need to. Now, if you happen to have discovered a way to bend time space, to open a portal so we can step through it and avoid having to fly on planes or trains, but also maintain the environment, don't throw it away. Keep that idea. 
Oh, you guys didn't even laugh. That was a terrible joke, I guess. You can keep your ideas, but the challenge again is see what translating the Bible does for you. Because man, it'll change your life. Let's try a little now here with these texts. Okay, Holy Cross Day, already talked about that. Where do we begin? Let's start with that weird snake on a pole numbers story. It is bizarre, no question. And it gets more bizarre the deeper you dig into it. I'm gonna try to move some stuff here so my pages don't blow. So they are traveling, it says, verse four, from Mount Or, Numbers 21, four to nine, from Mount Or they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around, not going to, just know that this is, this is after they have crossed the Red Sea, they've defeated Pharaoh and his hosts, but before they have made it into the promised land. And they have to go around this place called Edom, which is the descendants of Esau, who should have been kind of brotherly to them. They have to go around because they say no. And on the way around is when this story happens. It begins with the rest of the verse. The people became impatient on the way. Why would a person ever believe that a sermon is too long? There's only one reason. It's because you became impatient with the sermon. Now, is it always a sin to become impatient with every sermon ever? No. In fact, you should very much become impatient with lots of sermons. But you should not become impatient with the Word of God. And there's a difference, right? So the people here are impatient with God. And let me suggest that, again, if we look at the posture of Catholic Christianity, all Christians in America, let's just say it that way, right? Over the last 50 years... I would suggest that most of what we, do, we have done publicly has been based upon impatience. We're impatient with abortion laws. We're impatient with mission and growth in numbers. We're impatient with the education of our children and their wealth. We're not very impatient about them having children until it's too late, and then we are that too. Very little of what we have been as a people has been content. And that's because we live amongst a market of discontent. That's what the U.S. is. And I'm proud to be an American, honestly. It's better than communism. But I don't pretend for a moment it's not flush with evil men. My impatience is always a display of my shame and doubt. Whenever it happens, I've decided the world isn't the way it should be because it's hurting me in some way. And so I ought to even though the reality is that God will. And that's the thing, be still and know that he is God is to say that he will. You say, but what about this and that? And the question is, well, where's the office? God has instituted orders for the, the protection against evil. And you say, but they're defunding the police. And I say, then go vote. Then go march. Then get involved in your local neighborhood. But do not pretend that it's the job of the church to become afraid and impatient as a result. What happens to them and their impatience is one of the most weird stories. So then what is sent among them are what in the old King James, I believe, was translated as salamanders. And then if you look at it in the, um, 
what's called the Apocrypha, the books between the Old and New Testament, which are in a number of different languages, but I looked at it in Greek this week. The word there is dragons. So this is pre-Jesus by a couple hundred years. They think this was dragons among the people. And you think, well, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. And then you go read the Hebrew, which I've started doing again recently. So beware. It's, it's, it's another level of, of, I don't know, everything. Um, but the words there that are translated as fiery serpents, and I've always taken fiery to mean poisonous, and I think you're fine doing that. But fiery sounds like this in Hebrew. Seraphim. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because it's a word in Hebrew, seraphim. It usually, or it oftentimes, at times, refers to angels. The cherubim and or the seraphim, are they the same? Are they different? We can argue about that, too. But the point is, it's a word for an angelic power that's made of fire. The burning ones. And when you see them, they have their bodies covered with flames like coal and eyes everywhere and all that kind of stuff. So, well... But it wasn't just the seraphim that it was sent. It was the snakes of the seraphim. There's really snakes. Well, what on earth is going on? And then, you know, the people repent, which is the, the thing Luther draws out of this that's so valuable. The main thing that happens here is that the people repent. They realize, oh, the reason my life is frustrating to me right now is because I hate God. I'm going to try not hating God. It won't save me. He's got to do that. But maybe not hating God will stop hurting so much. And believe it or not, God sends them an answer, and it's more than they could possibly ask or imagine. Here they all are dying of snake bites, whatever kind it is. And God says to Moses, take a burning one and put it on a pole. And so Moses goes, and he makes a snake of brass. Now note the language shifts in English. God says make a burning one. Moses makes a snake made out of brass. Does that mean that he did something wrong? No, I don't know what any of this means other than that when Jesus comes along and says, the burning one, the heavenly snake, the power that is the story, yeah, that's me. I think that's amazing. Because this snake made of brass, set on a pole, lifted up in the sky, gleaming in the sunlight. It was shouted out among the people. All you got to do is turn around and look at it. And anybody who turned around and looked at it, they were healed. They lived immediately. And one of the commentaries I read this week said that, uh, of course, it wasn't the snake that healed them. It, it was the power of God, not the snake. And it was their turning to look at it in faith, not the snake. And I'm like, what's the difference? Faith is believing something that doesn't make sense. Because you know it's more true than your sense. And if you think your sense is the end all be all, you haven't spent enough time alone <laughs> talking to yourself and finding out what ideas you really have. So Jesus picks up on this in both John chapter 3, where he says that he is the snake. And then in John chapter 12, he brings up language that he mentioned in John 3. He doesn't mention necessarily the snake on the pole, but he mentions up the lifting up of the Son of Man. Both texts are optional for Holy Cross Day. And normally I would have preached on number three, John three. But the way that Jesus handles the disciples' approach to him in John 12 is really stark and stunning. Here it is Passover week. 
Here the crowds have come out to welcome him on the triumphal entry. Here is this massive, massive swelling of the city for a festival that every year threatens riots. And among it are some Greeks, we're told, some Hellenists. What this means is that they're not really supposed to be there. They may be God-fearers. They may be there because they kind of like the Jewish God and, and they've read the book of Isaiah and they, they think there's something here. But that they're going to Jesus is very strange and that the disciples think this is important right now is even stranger. I mean, Jesus can't eat or sleep for all the time that he does not have. And he's telling them any moment now, oh, it's in a day or two, I'm going to die. And yet they think it's a great idea to say, hey, these, these Greek guys are here. Now, my hunch on this is that they thought this would add to their war party in some way, that they were going to swell their numbers so that when it really came push to shove, they'd have outside power on their side. And this explains Jesus' response, because otherwise Jesus' response doesn't make sense. He scoffs at them. What are you doing? I'm about to die. Am I supposed to stop that? Why would I do that? Father, let's get this done. And then God talks. <laughs> Yes, we shall. And Jesus is all, that's for you guys. I didn't even need that. But like he knows you needed that. And that means for you today, by the way, because the people there thought it thundered, but you know what it means. And then what does he say after this? Verse 31, the Greek I spoke earlier. Nun articon tu kasmu tutu exo. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. This happened. Darkness covering the sky. Shaking and thundering and the ripping of the temple curtain. A crucifix is not that. The real salvation is the man, the body who died and rose again. But a crucifix is the image of that. I've come to believe that our shame of the crucifix is part of our failure as modern Christianity. We're so afraid of it being an idol. We're so afraid of the piece of wood meaning something else. We're so uncertain of our trust in our God that we won't look at the image of what he did to save us from ourselves. I realized this, I mentioned last week, when I made the effort to carry this into a store and didn't, and put it down, and I realized it's because I was ashamed of seeing Jesus while at Starbucks. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians, our final text, calls this cross foolishness, folly, a disaster of the mind, he says it's something that nobody will understand. In fact, it reminds me again of David, the time he was among the Philistines, writing on his doors, and they said the man is mad. Well, if you believe, as David did, that he had promises that would come true no matter what from a holy God, well then, yeah, you're mad to people who don't believe that, who think it's just a bunch of stuff floating around in the cosmos. So it's folly to them but to us, it is salvation. It is the power of God. And this, then, is the key. To know that it always feels like both these things. You're going to speak to somebody, and it's going to feel like folly, because they don't like it. Or they don't agree with it. Or they don't understand it. 
And then you're going to feel weak, like maybe you didn't say it right and it's your fault. That's when this verse matters most. The power of God just happened. The Spirit of God just channeled himself through you to say aloud the words of life. And you're worried about you. Why don't you listen to what you just said to the other person? Because it's true for you too. The word of the cross is power to we who are saving, who are being saved through again how I started the morning, the discipline of your conscience. That when the accus accusations come, the word of the cross is what you speak back to them. And I would contend to you that having a crucifix in your house on your wall or in your pocket or on your neck is a great, great way to remember to speak those words. You don't need it though. The cross is with you wherever you go. Now, there's much more in 1 Corinthians 18, 19, 20, 21. It gets a little circular feeling as Paul quotes something from the Old Testament and then, without explaining it to you, uses it to level an accusation at the world and just say, therefore I win, drop my walk away. And then he changes, not changes, but he builds on that topic. So for us, you know, we're maybe used to a few more bullet points along the way than what he does. So first he quotes, I will destroy the wisdom of of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. That's verse 19. Now this is God in the Old Testament saying that he is against the wisdom of men and against the pride of men's schemes. He's not against knowledge per se, but if we think to reach out our hands to take and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then use it against him, he will show us how little we have achieved. He will show us what uselessness wisdom is without him. That's his plan from of old, Paul says. So now he says, knowing that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is the stamp on eternity in antidote to that, in conclusion of that, in fulfillment of that. Now, where is the wisest guy today? Who's going to make sense of this guy? Where is the scribe and the debater? And is that not even this shame, their pride? They say, the Trinity, who could believe in that? It doesn't make sense. See, they glory in their shame. The pride you have in the Trinity is that it doesn't make sense. You have a God who's a God. And not just some pale reflection of you. Where is the wise man? God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Because, 21, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Put a period there in your head for a second. And think about it. Where is it true that in God's wisdom, we didn't know God through gaining knowledge and growing in wisdom? That's in paradise. In creation, when it first happened, God didn't put like a little treasure map to find him in the garden and say, I'll be here somewhere hiding. He breathed on them and was there to walk beside them. So God never wanted us to know him through our learning or our growth in the mind. And because of that, then, he's not going to save us through that. Because of that, then, he's not going to save us through things that make sense to people who don't believe it. He's only going to say things that make sense as they are believed. And so again, as it says here, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe it. What do we preach? He is risen. You are paid for. You're immortal now, and he won't be long now. And while it says Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, and you can take that to be an ethnic slur if you'd like to, 
But what it's really about is how there's two kinds of lie that float around in the devil's lie. There's actually three, but two dimensions here. One, the Jews. One, the Greeks. But that's not really what it's about. It's about those who seek signs and those who seek wisdom. In this book, we talk about those who are mystics and those who are rationalists. Those who think that by their hearts, they'll find Jesus through what they see happen. And those who think they're going to think their way into God's mind, both of these things are lies. They're lies that through your own wisdom, you would discern God as opposed to, again, Jews seek science, Greeks seek wisdom. All of us in our flesh want a different path to God than his word, but Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. And Christianity is the belief that that foolishness of the pacific death of Christ on the cross, the non-violence, it's wiser than men. This morning, I did something I do every morning, and I really don't want to do it, but I always do. I looked at Twitter. I do it because when I first wake up, I spend some time where most people spend when they first wake up doing the things you got to do sitting down in that room. And it takes a while, and I'm not really awake, and the blue light of my phone is such a nice little dopamine kick that I've got to turn it on and wake up. And I do. I've tried other things that are healthier than Twitter, but Twitter has its own way of creating that dopamine kick with the scroll. They, they've done this on purpose. It's very addictive. I don't, I'm not kidding. They've proven it uh, chemically. Uh, in any case, when I do that, I'm usually trying to keep an eye on what I'd call the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. What's going on around us? As best I can from first sources. I really try to, try to follow local reporters in other areas if I can to find out what's going on. And this morning I saw that somewhere, unless it's been faked, which I suppose it could have been, because I don't really believe a lot of it, um, I saw that somewhere overnight there was a police car parked, and it shows an individual just run right up to the police car, open a, take a gun out, fire two shots into the car, hit both officers. They were taken to the local hospital. Rioters slash protesters showed up and began blocking the emergency exit of the hospital. The sheriffs in the area tweeted out, please disperse the riot. You're blocking emergency vehicles from helping other people. And that's where I left it about 5.36 this morning. I don't recommend watching that video, by the way. It, it, there, you don't see it. Like, you just see the, the hand, the gun, the car. Um, don't watch it if you can help it. We cannot be satisfied with living in a country like that. We cannot be satisfied with that here, this corner, this city. I think we need to be very mindful today of all the trials and tribulations that people who are not us have gone through in this country. From the illegal immigrants who is here, and I would agree should be here legally instead, but who is here seeking to provide food for his family to the, the, the people who want to tear it down, honestly. They want to tear it down because they've been traumatized or hurt in some way that's so deep that they blame everything for it. We need to be mindful that everybody is fighting an internal life battle that we know nothing about. And now we're being taught to talk to each other in slogans of hate. Our history in America is that of Men of two faces. Men who present to the world one image and do behind closed doors another image. 
If you think that Donald Trump is the only corrupt president in the United States, or that Barack Obama is the only corrupt president in the United States, or that, shall I go all the way through them all for you? Why did JFK get shot at the end of the day? Our history is one of men of two-faced power, and I have no desire to rise up in arms against them or try to change them by force. But I do have every intention of not letting them silence us. And it begins by remembering what Jesus said beyond our text today. He said, bless those who hate you and do good to those who oppress you. Bless those who hate you. Do good to those who oppress you. It's not intuitive. It's not revenge. It's not justice. It's mercy. If you want to call mercy a white man's racist idea, then I'll let you decide what spirit you have in you, and I'll keep the one that's in me. Thank you very much. Because I know certain man who once said this in a very powerful speech, not the Sermon on the Mount, the most powerful, but perhaps the most powerful sermon ever given in the United States of America. He said, unearned suffering is redemptive. Yeah, that'd be a note. Unearned suffering is redemptive. And that man in that sermon, he asked the people who heard him to not go home that day without deciding to stop wallowing like the rest of the world in hopeless despair and to instead face the manifold difficulties of their individual lives wherever they might be unabsolved from a very specific dream. A dream deeply rooted in the United States of America because a Jew named Jesus convinced its founders, who mostly were not Christians, to believe in the potential of forgiven, liberated, enlightened men to live together in peace. Martin Luther King Jr. in that sermon said that was a dream not yet lived out its true meaning in this land. He was clear. The dream is a promise, and the promise is not fulfilled. But unlike those who would call the races to riot today, he did not say, therefore, give up the dream. No, he said, it is not any less a worthwhile creed to say we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And that on that idea... Brothers and sisters who are not Christians, just neighbors in a neighborhood, on that idea alone, can have fields of charity bind them to each other, can be former enemies who are not enemies, can see former fears that are no longer fears, can see prodigal races and their animosity gather around a round table of priestly, kingly brotherhood in the Christian church. A dream that the burning heat of rioting racism, sweltering and swarming on the news or off the news. The greed and the cowardice and whatever swamp it exists near or far can be transfigured not there by us, but here by us, in our minds, our families, our lives, transfigured into an oasis of powerful, 
neighborly philanthropy, the love of man, brotherhood. I have a dream that my five children, surviving as they are, will one day live among a countryman and a people where they will not be judged according to the color of this, their skin, but according to the content of their character and what that becomes in their conduct. Because as a white man today, that country does not exist. Not here. I've been taught now to fear my brothers because of the color of their skin by a world that's not here. And I want to fight back. I want to fight back. I want to believe in that American dream, not because it's better than what I got here at Christianity, but because Christianity can make it good. I want to believe it because of that black life martyred to preach that sermon that was taught to me in a grade school in order that I might be here today to preach it again boldly, and if I might do so, more so. Because Dr. King... I'll let his theology stand apart for the moment. On that day with his dream did not finish by declaring that all glory in Christ is yet coming to us. Unfortunately, in his tradition, there's a way of seeing that that won't happen until we make it happen. And I don't want to leave you with that at all. I want to tell you that you're going to go home from today not having to decide whether or not you will stand up. You're going to go home today with your faith and confidence that he is risen and you are paid for, compelling you to stand up, to be empowered, to look at the valley of the shadow of death and enemies all around and to realize that if today be the day you die, be a good day. Because you know exactly where you're going. And that by the persuasive power of these words here in our midst, you can stop worrying about all those other things we get so impatient about. The Lord knows you need all those things. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first the breath. Seek to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. And transfigure this white noise, black hate, Babylon falling into a resurrection mindset of a Catholic Christianity that won't shut up. That won't shut up. Yeah, trying to bring it to a close. On that same day, in that same sermon, out of Martin Luther King Jr.'s mouth came these words. If America is to be great, if America is to be great, America is to be great. Again, later, now, today, he says it'll be when little black boys and little white girls can join hands to sing my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, where the fathers died, where the pilgrims pride, from every mountainside made freedom ring. But I'm going to challenge you, Christians, to take it a step further than just that. Don't just love your neighbor. Don't just love your neighbor. Your God. Love your God you to himself that every footstep you take in this life is numbered, planned, and guaranteed to give you hope in him. And wherever you live, suburb or hood,
country or township, if you be Christian or Catholic, if you be black or white, rich or poor. Know that the enemy doesn't ever think Jesus is enough. But Jesus is enough. Saying he is risen is enough. And Christianity is the conviction that you're going to die on that. In the name of Jesus, amen.